0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Michael Levitt. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Today I'm joined by Professor Michael Levitt, who is a professor of structural biology and I think computers at Stanford University in the West Coast of America. Professor Levitt was a co recipient seven years ago of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for, and I'm quoting, the development of multi scale models for complex chemical systems. Now, Michael, you came to great prominence back in February when some online observations that you had made on the contagion rates of COVID 19 in China were noticed. Uh, And uh, as I think the vernacular has it today, your comments went viral within 24 hours. Since then, and you've been a very prominent analyst of the public debate regarding the virus and governments around the world of their response to it. This concerns every one of us because there's still a great deal that's not known, there's massive confusion, there's a real possibility it seems to me and to many of a second, even third round, we couldn't possibly go through all of this again. So can I begin by, by, by asking you just to say something about uh, your qualifications, and indeed your time in China, your relationship with China, uh, equips you so well to be able to comment on, on this problem. So I, I
1: should say that I'm a very global person. I actually was born in South Africa and have spent uh, about a quarter of my life in four different countries, South Africa, United Kingdom, Israel, and the United States. And in each place I've not been a visitor. I've actually had live there. So I have a very global view of the world. Um, I now spend time in China because my wife is a curator of Chinese art, so China has been sort of added as one of the places that I spend more than a few days a year. Um, I got into this really by accident. We have friends in China. And uh, at, at the time of the Chinese New Year, which was basically when it was ramping up, um, we'd written a message to them saying how we were thinking about them and the response was so heartwarming. I really realized that they were feeling very much out in the, on their own. So I decided to start off by comparing um, what we were getting online about uh, COVID-19, had a different name back then, with SARS, the 2003 SARS epidemic. Quickly saw that uh, they were very, very different uh, COVID was growing much more quickly, but it was also much more lethal. Uh, SARS was basically killing between 10 and 15 percent of the cases everywhere, both in Hong Kong, Canada, mainland China. I also noticed very quickly that uh, COVID-19 was uh, much more lethal inside the province of Hubei than in the rest of China. So this distinction was something that I made very early on and uh, decided to... uh, break Chan into two parts, Hubei and non-Hubei. Hubei Hubei is a pretty big province. It's 60 million people. But initially, the uh, case fatality ratio, the number of, the fraction of cases who were dying, was 3 or 4% in Hubei and one fifteenth of that outside Hubei. There were still many cases in places like uh, uh, Shanghai or Zhejiang or other provinces, but the fatalities were much, much smaller. So this made me realize that, This distinction was very important. Uh, Looking at the data, I made a prediction on the 2nd of February, based on something like 10 days of data. Um, It was actually just sent to my friends. It was not meant to be a prediction that would go viral. Um, But very quickly, I got emails saying, was I the Michael Levitt who had predicted these things? And of course, I had to answer yes. Uh, And then I suddenly felt committed because I'd said something. um, I couldn't now say, okay, enough of that, I'm gonna walk away. So basically for the next uh, month, I wrote, I did daily analyses, wrote daily reports, essentially all on the Chinese uh, media WeChat, WeChat uh, because I posted it on my website instead but they might not be able to see it and so on. Um, and this basically was a commitment. Qu- quickly we reali- I, I realized, I'm, I'm not a virologist, but I do like data. I'm very, very experienced at analyzing data I can write programs in many different languages. In fact, in this case, I used Microsoft Excel, which almost everyone can use because it was fine. Um, And uh, basically, this brought me through uh, February. I studied the Diamond Princess because I was very concerned uh, what was the population fatality ratio. I realized very quickly that for COVID nineteen, the cases are measured by a non-clinical assessment, measured by whether whether you're sort of colored by the virus and as a result you could probably find as many cases as you want by just doing more and more testing Uh, and therefore uh, if you wanted to know what fraction of the cases were dying it would not depend the number of deaths would be the same but the number of cases would keep on growing so you could make your death rate anything you liked and the important thing was to know what fraction of the population in any particular area would be likely to die and to see how that would compare with um, other uh, bad viral risks we have like flu. So that sort of was the introduction. I was hooked and uh, have basically been on this all the time since then. Um, it's been, you know, I, I guess I'm surprised that I'm still alive after 120 days with COVID analysis, which is a much worse disease than COVID. Um, but that's the way it is. <laughs> so
0: that
1: was basically my my. my uh, you know, I, I also do have the work that I do in structural biology is, is computer modeling. And as such, uh, you know, I, as I said, I have a lot of experience with data. I'm also at a medical school. It's Stanford Medical School. My colleagues are all medical people. Um, my colleagues in the department are all experimentalists. I'm sort of the only computer guy there. Um, so, you know, I, I have been exposed to a lot of the issues about disease and medicine.
0: Well, now, uh, one of the extraordinary things that we've seen that you might be able to fill us in on was that uh, the mobbing by Neil Ferguson at Imperial College in England predicted deaths of up to 500,000 in that country. he soon revised those numbers down dramatically, but it drove some very jerky public policy in Britain, Uh, and you've been critical about uh, the way in which they've handled it, and you've been critical about the way Australia's handled it, uh, but the numbers are really interesting, Michael. Uh, I think they've had around 600 deaths per minute. Australia is on four per minute. Uh, still you know, quite restrictive yep. on what we can do, beginning to ease up a bit now. But these extraordinary differences, and now or, 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 you know, modelling driven by people like Ferguson, which has resulted in very jerky government policy and great uncertainty in communities. What went wrong? How did this happen?
1: So I think that, uh, but I just, I've become one of the good things for me about uh, the whole COVID issue was I actually got into Twitter and I find Twitter to be the most wonderful medium in terms of intelligent discussions and nice people. I mean, everyone thinks I must have an alternative world Twitter, but uh, you know, I. Gone from no followers to 14,000 followers in about 40 days. And discussion is phenomenal. The first time I came across Neil Ferguson was that in around mid April, no, sorry, mid February, really just a few weeks after being involved, uh, I saw a paper of his where they predicted that the case fatality ratio in China was 14%. And I knew at that point from my observations that it was three or four percent in Hubei and one-tenth of that outside Hubei. And I just didn't understand how he was getting his numbers. Uh, I looked at the paper quite carefully and saw a table where he said in a footnote, assuming exponential growth for six days at 15 percent a day. And exponential growth, I know mathematically, is is a very scary thing. Um, but basically, I, I put things aside, I was I had, my mother and brother and sister all live in London, so I have a very strong personal interest in England. I was actually quite pleased to hear that the government there was going to sort of not you know, implement lockdown, to go for herd immunity, and then around uh, the middle of March, um, but after that, there was the uh, Ferguson predictions of half a million in Britain and uh, 2.2 million in the United States, and I think uh, uh, 100 million in—I mean, 100,000 in Sweden, and so on. He made predictions in many, many places. Um, and at the time, um, a well-known statistician in in Cambridge, Sir David Spiegelhalter, had written an article in the medium. Well, he basically said that he sort of translated Ferguson's numbers uh, instead of being millions of deaths in how many months or years of natural death it is. And it turns out that uh, Ferguson's numbers were about a year of natural death. So in the United States, about between two and three million people die naturally every year. And in the United Kingdom, about half a million. So in some ways, what he was saying was, that Ferguson's predictions were like double the natural death for a year. Now, I had been doing completely independent of this, uh, some calculations that were based on the death rate that I'd calculated for the Diamond Princess. The cruise ship was a a very interesting case, a small population that had been very highly infected. And uh, it wasn't clear to me that the conditions on on the cruise ship were perfect quarantine, because on a cruise ship, There's very high density of people. Uh, There's one kitchen. uh, There's one air conditioning system. It's not a and and, you know. So I was made the assumption that maybe the Diamond Princess was as bad as it could get. And from the Diamond Princess, I calculated uh, roughly what death I would expect. And then I took those numbers and I applied them before I actually saw this post by Spiegelhalter to various countries and concluded that the amount of death. If every if every country behaved like the Diamond Princess, which is a pr- like saturation infection, the number of deaths would be much more like one month of natural death than one year. So I actually uh, replied to uh, Sir David Spiegelhalter on um, the medium. He then wrote back and said, "Well, he thought my numbers were were wrong." So then I actually sat down and. Did a very careful calculation and essentially it's just proportionality it's something which everyone learns at school basically if you use the same model and i use the uh, ferguson model you can say you know what conditions do you need what is basically a single number do you need to get ferguson's numbers for united kingdom and the united states and it's, it's the same number used and then also what does that predict for the diamond princess and it predicted Uh, something like 60 deaths, whereas in reality, there were only seven deaths. So I basically said, using seven numbers is a very dangerous thing. This was the only case where we actually did have uh, an observation of the saturation uh, number of infected, which was about 20%, work back and use that proportionality to see what happens in the United Kingdom and in USA. And basically the numbers, as you'd expect, just drop by a factor of 10. So uh, I think the United States became uh, 250,000 instead of 2.2 2 million, and the UK became 60,000 instead of uh, half a million. Uh, I then decided to uh, try to contact Ferguson about this. Uh, I'd actually tried contacting him before. But I have noticed that many, many UK scientists are not very good at email. I, I get a lot of email. And for me, email is my lifeline. So I do try at least to go through my emails and, uh, you know, at least acknowledge all of them. It's not so easy, but I try. Uh, so then uh, I, I made contact with, I have a friend who's actually the head of the Royal Society. So by copying him, I managed to get Ferguson to pay attention. And he basically said I was wrong. And at that point, I did something which is not in my nature. I basically said, oh, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, so I left it at that. But the fact is, as uh, going forward, you know, a, a month of excess death is what we're seeing in the hardest hit place in the world, which is in Europe. In Europe, uh, there is something like 160,000 real excess deaths in the last 10 weeks. And that's about three weeks of normal death in the area covered. Maybe a little bit over, maybe 3.2 weeks. I felt that those estimates are good. Uh, You know, people have said, well, the numbers in Europe were very low because they controlled the epidemic so well. But I remember the pictures of Italy and and Sweden and Belgium and parts of England where it didn't look so well controlled. So my argument was that this really was following the diamond princess and If you did nothing as Sweden would, you did very little. Uh, You weren't going to get more than uh, a fatality ratio, a population fatality ratio that ends up being something like 500 per million. Uh, I think in Europe it's 470 per million. Sweden right now is 370 per million. And this, I think, seems to be the level at which. Even if you do nothing, you can't get people infected more than that. This turns out to be just a little bit more, maybe 20% higher than the population fatality ratio that was seen for the 2017-2018 influenza in exactly the same European zone. So I'm comparing COVID in Europe with influenza on the same population, and the number for COVID is about 20% more. Now, these are... Not reported deaths; these are actual excess deaths because in many countries that have done lockdown, uh, the number of excess deaths has actually gone down. So, uh, you know, there's been a small number of deaths from COVID, but if you lock your country down uh, in the short term, you actually save lives. So that was my logic. Uh, You know, I I I don't believe in confrontation. I I feel uh, a little bit sorry for Neil Ferguson because probably. People listen to him too much. Um, You know, These models are subject to all kinds of issues. Although I do think he could have perhaps paid a little bit more attention to what I wrote to him, at least looked at it and said, well, maybe this is a scientific... I think one problem, uh, a general problem we have with epidemiologists, is if I tell you there'll be a million deaths in Australia, and then I say, oops, sorry, with your... uh, with your lockdown, there will only be a thousand deaths. Everyone thinks it's fine. But if I say, you know, I don't believe there's going to be more than 800 deaths. And then there's a thousand deaths. So I think in epidemiology, they sort of feel that scaring is a good idea. And I think in, I'm think i sure they're very surprised that the advice was taken. Because Neil Ferguson and the World Health Organization uh, has put out scares about Ebola scares about birds, flu, that was similarly exaggerated, and then nothing happened, no one locked down, and everyone felt that they had done their job okay. So in some ways, um, and maybe this is a, a logical description of what's really going on, I personally as a number scientist feel that a 10% error is equally bad if you're too small or too big, and and uh, it's not right to forgive a huge error and then say, oh, well, you listen to what I said. Um, so, you know, I think the, and the reason it's not fair is that the lockdown costs something. If a lockdown was completely free in terms of economy, in terms of social impact, in terms of uh, uh, education for children, uh, then it would be fine. But a lockdown, unfortunately, in this global world, has massive consequences in all of those areas. And of course, there's another consequence I haven't even mentioned, which is delayed medical treatment. Um, Everyone said that hospitals were going to be uh, overflowing with COVID cases. They weren't. Um, but as a result, nobody who had a heart problem, a strong, uh, cancer treatment, actually went to hospital. So we now have people who have uh, neglected their important medical treatment for two months. Uh, it's going to be interesting what's going to happen. I don't really know. The You know, if you believe that those people have been put in, in harm's way by doing this, We should see a secondary peak in excess deaths. It may not be so. It may turn out that uh, being locked down and having the excitement is actually quite good at preventing lots of other illnesses. Uh, We don't know that yet. This is a a speculation and I'm making somewhat uh, as a joke.
0: Well, it's certainly a hydro-headed monster because there's no doubt about it it's highly complex. I mean, road deaths are down. All sorts of other deaths are down, excess deaths as you say, uh, are are down because of this. But uh, my goodness, certain segments of the community are paying a very high price for it. If you take our own country, the people who have lost their jobs, for example, are in the private sector. Uh, They're the ones who generate the money for the people who are in the public sector. So there has been an inclination in the public sector to want to go harder on the lockdown. But the people who pay the price for the lockdown in economic terms and for their jobs, are those in the private sector, in the business world, and the jobs that depend on business in the private sector. So it's incredibly complex. But to come to this issue uh, of, um, if you like, if I can put it this way, some of the deaths really essentially being deaths that are brought forward because of underlying conditions or of demographic factors such as age. Your own analysis coming out of Europe is quite fascinating. As I understand it, it shows that only 8% of coronavirus or C19 deaths were of people aged below 65 and 50% were of people 85 and over, uh, disproportionately even in that age bracket uh, I suspect uh, males. Um, Those who have been paying close attention to this debate will have heard this point being made about those who die of COVID-19, and those who die with it. How do we understand this, and why is it important? Well,
1: I think that, um, I should also say that those same age rate deaths also applied to the influenza outbreak of 2017-18. So if you had, oftentimes, you know, oftentimes you can characterize the disease by how it affects age groups, but in this particular case, COVID and influenza, uh, had a very, very similar effect on age groups. Another very important thing is, is that flu is seasonal. It occurs in the winter. but It doesn't occur every year. And if you actually look at the uh, European data, there was severe flu in 1718, much milder flu in 1819, uh, and no flu in 1920. So, I mean, in ni- the year 2019-2020, which means that people who... Uh, perhaps would have uh, not survived a severe flu in the winter that we've just passed, were actually alive. But there also seems to have been here a national, a worldwide desire to try to maximize how many deaths each country had from COVID. Uh, Quite the opposite of what you'd imagine they should be doing. Um, I saw this very, very clearly in Israel where I've been. Uh, I actually got into trouble here because I said very early on I'd be surprised if there were more than 10 deaths. And then when the number got uh, you know to 10 and 20 and so on, I got some very, very unpleasant emails It eventually ended up being 300. In Israel, the actual excess deaths are about 300 below what they should have been in a normal year. So, you know, was the death rate from COVID plus 300 or minus 300? And the trouble is, is that the the there's this issue of dying with and from, but there's also this issue of, since the same people who are dying from COVID are exactly the same people who die naturally, and I want to actually check this in the Eurozone, you know, are 8% of the natural deaths also below 65? Because if we're, if the and 85 and half the deaths over 85 are also natural, if we're dying from exactly the same cohorts who die naturally, then if I die from COVID this week, I can't die naturally next week. I mean, excess death is great because you only count each death. But if you're counting specific COVID deaths, you may count people for whom you're just uh, you know, slightly bringing forward their date of death. So all of these are, are, are very interesting, complicated questions. Something which I didn't anticipate, but I heard this from uh, doctors in the United States, is that there are actually good reasons there to say that somebody died of COVID rather than, say, of cancer or a heart attack. And basically, uh, the reimbursement that a hospital gets for a patient, uh, if you have a patient who basically has pneumonia, which is very similar to the way you die in, in, in COVID, um, and you say they died of pneumonia, you get much less of than if you say they died from COVID. And apparently, if you also put that person on a bed you even get an extra, extra money for that. Um, but it goes much beyond the United States. I think everywhere they've tried to emphasize number of deaths, uh, very they often mention the uh, pre-existing conditions, but you know I, in is in Israel, the median age of people dying is over eighty five. In fact, everywhere in Europe it's eighty five because if half the deaths are over eighty five, then by definition the median is eighty five. Um, and these are people who have other conditions as well. So instead of emphasizing um, that these are deaths which are probably natural deaths. They decided to rather emphasise the the COVIDness of their deaths, and this I think is is true everywhere. The New York Times recently had a front page with all the hundred thousand names of the COVID deaths. Now, in the same period, uh, there were another seven hundred thousand non-COVID deaths of exactly the same age group. Nobody really dies naturally. Everyone dies of something. You know, you have a stroke, you have a heart attack, you get pneumonia, you have a fall. I mean, you know, even if you die in your sleep, it's probably because something happened. And I sort of felt it was not really fair, but why should the people, you know, who died from COVID be decorated like this, where the people who died naturally or not from COVID shouldn't be? So there are lots of issues here, um, but I am still very surprised that, uh, there was this tendency to want to emphasize COVID numbers, as if it was an Olympic games, to see who had most COVID cases. I, I don't understand this It's also very counterproductive, because it means that in a country like Australia or Israel, um, the epidemic was stopped at very, very low infection rates. And therefore, there may be vulnerability to second waves.
0: Over I'll to you. We'll come to second waves in a moment. but. Um you do see this uh, herd-like mentality on the part of the media, it seems, uh, to highlight the disastrous or to catastrophize uh, what is a serious situation. I'm not making light of it for a moment. So you see it with Sweden. It's almost as breathless. Will this work? Won't it work? And now we're seeing headline reports that the, the, the rate of uh, deaths from COVID-19 has soared because they haven't locked down. That's the implication. In reality- But it's not true. That's not true.
1: No, it's not true. Anyone's numbers. The number of deaths in Sweden right now is under four thousand. We have a new method to predict endpoints, and it's gonna. It'll probably end at around uh, below five thousand. Even five thousand is five hundred per million, Um, and that is well within what you expect from Europe. I mean, it's it's not. it's not different from numbers you're getting in the United Kingdom or in uh, Italy and so on. I mean, the average for all of Europe uh, is, I think, four hundred and forty per million. So you know, and all Europe is big, very big area with southerly areas and northerly areas, and includes Greece and um, you know, so uh, so on.
0: You you paint a very clear picture, and thank you. It's it's very helpful of excess deaths and The real numbers, uh, depending so very much on this issue of whether you die with it or of it. Uh, And it begs this question, doesn't it? I mean, it it would be very easy to say, oh, look, you know, uh, not only have we saved a lot of people from COVID-19 by lockdowns, we've saved all the other excess deaths that would have occurred. Uh, The problem with that is, I mean, that is is like saying, well, let's close the economy down uh, (laughs) because uh, uh, that's a good thing to do, notwithstanding... The disastrous downsides, I mean, surely, to take a very simple example, we know that if you stopped everybody driving all motor cars, there would be no road deaths. But nobody suggests for a moment that we stop all motor cars. We recognize we have to take a balance. That's not to say that we take a cheap view of life at all. It just means that we approach things in a pragmatic and sensible way and accept there are always going to be dangers.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. You know, there's another aspect here that uh, uh, in, in uh, nationalized health systems where you, people are covered essentially under insurance, uh, they have a very clear indicator of uh, you know, useful years of life. And I know that in the United Kingdom, um, you know, they're prepared to pay something like, let's just say, for example, 40,000 US dollars, it might be 30,000 UK pounds, For one, you know, for doing a measure that gives you one more useful year of life. Now, um, this basically means that there's a way to evaluate, you know, a useful year of life. And part of this measure is it takes into account disabilities. Uh, It also takes into account age. Uh, And in this measure of useful years of life, if you die above life expectancy, unfortunately, it's not counted. Now, this might seem very harsh. But, you know, I'm 73 years old, and if I want to get life insurance, no one's going to insure me. I mean, they might insure me at a premium that is so high that I would probably do better putting the money into a bank account. Um, So why is that wrong? Um, You know, there is a measure of years of life. And, you know, I'm not saying that every death is a terrible loss. But we have a lot of death anyway, and no one has a way to postpone death. And my, what my concern is, and I, I, I was very taken by what you said about who is bearing the brunt of the damage. And you know, for, for each person, okay, you can make the following one. For each person who is kept alive at great expense, say over the age of 85, it's a zero sum game. We don't have infinite money for healthcare. And it's probably causing the deaths of younger people from disadvantaged areas, who are not getting the healthcare that they should be getting. Now, you know, you might say, "Okay, it's okay in the United States if I'm, pay, you know, if I'm a millionaire and I'm paying for that." But in countries where they have some kind of socialized medicine, in America, they do have Medicare, which is a, a form of socialized medicine. You're basically, you think you're. It's 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 not as there is some gain for each person. You know, I, I remember thinking about this. There was a, a case in the United States. Uh, probably 10 years ago, a, a lady whose name was Terry Shea was kept alive, uh, she yes. was brain dead to her family. And Congress actually intervened. And I thought, you know, it, it's great to say that life is sanctified. For each day that she's kept alive, I bet a few hundred underprivileged kids are dying. So what we're saying is it's not life sanctity, it's old people's sanctity. And, you know, I think in a very strange way, and I, I, I'm i 73, my mother's 105, she's locked down in London, so I, I'm, I'm very aware of being old. But I also feel that the uh, baby boomer, I'm a generation that has been rather selfish. We think we're the greatest, we think we have the best music. I imagine you're a similar generation as I am. I was born in 47. Uh, and as a result, I actually feel that it's very selfish of me to care so much about my own life and the life of my contemporaries and not worry about the livelihood of young people because economic uh, economic stress causes suicides. It causes murders. Uh, I know in Israel, as soon as the lockdown was relaxed, the amount of domestic violence shot up. The amount of pedestrians killed on the road shot up. And of course, these are younger people. If you can't Years of life lost. You know, one person in a road accident at the age of twenty is like sixty people who die one year younger than life expectancy by this measure of of years of life lost. So I think it's it's very unfair. I also think the lives we're saving by lockdown are, are not necessarily you know the young lives. Maybe they are. I don't see any sign of that yet. We're actually saving a lot of the older lives. Um, and at a huge cost. I mean, way more than the $40,000 per use, use for the year of life. I, people have estimated that the if you take the uh, global cost to the economy and divide that by the total excess deaths from COVID, the price we've been paying is colossal. I mean, quite colossal. It's, it's, it's many millions of dollars per life saved. And, uh, you know, we can't afford that. So I.
0: Yeah. Well, we won't be complain. paying it. We won't be paying it. Our children will. It, it, can we move to... So what worries me is the real chance that there may be, in keeping with previous patterns, a second or a third rollover, we can't go through this again. We cannot do it. There's no way Sorry. that we can build up even more public sector debt with a whole new round of lockdowns, and it would be bad public policy. And I don't think populations... Pop, I don't think the Australian people would wear it again.
1: Yeah, I I, I would say the following. I I think, firstly, we always need to remember that COVID, by and large, has had the same burden of death as seasonal flu. And you therefore need to ask, I mean, besides saving lives in in traffic accidents, you could argue, because the number from seasonal flu is way higher than the number of deaths from traffic accidents, and actually less justified, because we we need to drive cars. So in principle, you know, if if we really wanted to, we could reduce influenza deaths, uh, for example, by having very strict rules for nursing homes and so on. Uh, And remember, half the deaths, certainly, in the Western world are for people in nursing homes. The reason being that the carers are all young, the carers don't stay in. Uh, Nursing homes would cost five times as much per person if we didn't uh, do them the way they are now. So I think we need to take our acceptance of influenza as the stick. This is no worse than influenza. Now, let's, it's now, where it is actually worse for your and I did try to make this point on Twitter, is for healthcare workers. Uh, healthcare workers are smart. They all take flu vaccine. For COVID, they didn't have a vaccine. Not only that, there was huge public expectation that they become heroes. And uh, I think many of the people who ended up being on ventilators I think the survival rate of of a ventilator was dismal. It was at very best 50% and I've heard in some cases only 20% who went onto a ventilator were, were, were survived. So maybe it wasn't worth it. A lot of people have said that going to hospital is a bad idea because eventually from COVID you probably die of bacterial pneumonia and hospitals have much, much more virulent, dangerous bacteria than you have at home. Anyway, that's not important. I think the second wave here, you know, I agree with you. I certainly hope that the world does not behave crazily, but I do feel the following. I feel I actually don't expect a second wave, and and the reason is is that um, well, I think we don't know what's going to happen in China. I think the the large population. Um, you know, if we look at the world's population right now, Europe, we we've had uh, three hundred and fifty million people who have got close to this number that I think is the right number of uh, 500 in a million to reach some kind of saturation. There's a lot of argument about whether this is herd immunity. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Herd immunity has a well-defined immunological meaning. Um, but you know, there's another explanation and that is that in every society, uh, and this is gonna sound very harsh, uh, it's a bit like a forest where some of the trees become weak. And, and, you know, beginning of winter, so those very strong winds will knock down some fraction of those trees, and very sad. But if the next week there's another huge storm, it won't knock down the same number of trees. It might not knock down any number of trees. So if we go back to what I was saying about there being no severe flu in Europe uh, in the last couple of years, this means that there were many, many people who would not have survived until now, had there been severe flu, probably about the number that have died from COVID. These people were very vulnerable. And these are the people who have died. So if, if there were to be another COVID outburst in Europe, even if there's no immunos, trees are known, it, it takes time to accumulate those trees, those, those very vulnerable people. So I actually think, and the reason I think this is, is that this, this level of around half, uh, a level of around 500 per million, has been seen in many, many places. It's also the same number that came from the Diamond Princess, the same number that came from Wuhan. Where there's an exception, actually, is in New York City. New York City seems to have three or four times higher the saturation death rate, and I actually think this is a reflection on the health system in New York City. New York City has very poor people also very, very rich people. It probably has an income inequality just for a city that is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. It has a lot of old people who are in uh, nursing homes, a lot of homeless people, a lot of obese people. But it, even there, you know, the number of deaths was more like uh, 1,000 to 2,000 per million. It's still not dramatically high. It's still not something that is it, – it, it's higher than flu, but it's not – out of all proportions. So I think the other thing is that the, the coronavirus is a different kind of virus. Uh, when this thing started, I have a friend at Stanford who actually is a specialist in viruses. He said, you know, don't even this is when it's only in China. This is like February 2nd or 3rd. He said to me, don't worry, coronaviruses don't like being very virulent in human beings. Half of the regular common cold viruses are coronaviruses. Coronaviruses will mutate to become less and less virulent. Because they the other thing that they told me was that flu is a very special virus. Flu is not like or measles or other viruses in that flu mutates. Flu comes, flu is really good at a facial makeover. It makes itself look different. And therefore we have different strains of flu every year. And this is why every year uh, the World Health Organization and other responsible bodies work very, very hard to make vaccine for not last year's flu, but the coming flu. They do a great job, and if you take the vaccine, so we don't have immunity, flu, because flu keeps on changing. So it's not clear to me what is really going on with COVID. There are, uh, I don't think that COVID, uh, as a coronavirus, can do this kind of makeover that flu does. It's a very rare thing. I think also people are saying that another reason for this apparent saturation at 20% might not be my wheat trees in the forest analogy, it might simply be that most of us are exposed to coronavirus through common colds all the time. And maybe there's some cross-reactivity, and there's again tentative evidence for this. So what I've noticed in in following Twitter is that the so-called 80% required for herd immunity is slowly dropping to 50%. my guess may end up being twenty percent, and you know it's, it's quite likely that countries who have had their five hundred uh, deaths per a million, as we have had in Europe and Sweden and most of the USA, uh, will also actually have this level of uh, infection. So they may indeed be immune. So it's not clear. I also that there are seasonal issues. I think that uh, you know, uh, in in the southern hemisphere, we we, we really only have. Uh, to compare Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And in all of these places, uh, there has been lockdown, but it's also not clear to me really how effective lockdown is. And one might actually argue that uh, uh, these countries, perhaps Israel too, which is an area where its neighbors didn't lock down so well, but also didn't have huge numbers of deaths. Maybe in those country- in those countries, flu is less prevalent maybe, and as that reason, maybe COVID is less prevalent, just for the reasons of population density, climatic zone, and so on. So these are all uncertainties, and I think, uh, for me, don't in any way guarantee a second wave. And I think what's happening now is is that the the doomsayers who have been disappointed about their first wave are back on the bandwagon about the second and third waves. We'll see. You know. Um, It's too soon to tell. But even in countries like Japan, I mean, Japan and Korea are are very interesting cases because they had quite a lot of COVID. They never got rid of the cases. I mean, in Australia, in New Zealand, there are no cases anymore, or at least a very, very tiny number. In Korea and Japan, there are continual cases. Same thing is true to some extent in Singapore. And yet there is no runaway, you know, crazy outbreak. Uh, So maybe there is other ways of dealing with this. I personally believe that uh, the uh, Eastern mentality of common good, i.e., when you have a cold, you wear a mask, may be an important preventative for corona. Um, It's not clear, but we'll see. You know, I, I think we don't know yet. You might have expected massive second waves, say, in South Korea. South Korea didn't just have one wave, it had multiple waves same thing was actually true in Australia. You had uh, a couple of totally independent waves, which I can see from my, my analysis of the data. This suggests that you know, if you have multiple waves, it's just that your control isn't that great because what a new wave means is, is that you were focused on locking down one place, and then you know, two weeks later, some other area burst up. Uh, so I think we don't know. Um, I think Brazil right now is one of the most interesting places. I was on an interview there a couple of weeks ago. And right now, one has to remember that Brazil is a very large country, uh, 220 million people. And the number of deaths uh, right now, I think, are 30,000. My projections, which I very much tongue-in-cheek, suggest that Brazil will not get more than 100,000 deaths. Now, 100,000 deaths might sound huge, but for a population of 220 million, That is exactly, you know, 500 per million. So it's basically what you'd expect. Um, So I think all of this is actually still fitting together. But, you know, predictions about the future are very difficult. And uh, what I'm doing is not, everything I'm doing is based on the numbers. I I, uh, try very hard, and we're trying very hard to test things carefully. Tell me,
0: then, as... Governments and their people worry about the uncertainty going into the future. It's widespread. Any thoughts on, firstly, uh, people developing antibodies? It appears that most people don't, as I understand from the research. And then the second issue, what are the chances, in your view, of an effective uh, um, vaccine?
1: So let me just answer the second
0: uh, part of the question first, because it's
1: easy. I don't know. I think there's... A lot of uncertainty. One would, I mean, you know, as I said before, common colds are coronaviruses, and there are massive economic incentives to have a vaccine to the common cold. If you think about you know, leaving flu aside, if you actually look at the economic cost of the common cold, it is massive. Uh, in days lost at work, people just feeling bad. I mean, it's not lethal. Uh, school days missed. So I, I worry that there has been a lot of incentive to develop a coronavirus uh, uh, vaccine. And on the other hand, technologies are improving. There are massive incentive. It's not clear whether it will happen. It probably won't happen in time for uh, winter uh, 2021. It may do. So I just don't know. It's it's there's very much a huge question mark. Um, as for the antibody tests, I think... You know, there's a lot of mixed messages we, we don't yet know, and uh, it, it's, it, it's a difficult issue because if we've got uh, some existing uh, innate immunity to coronaviruses that has been conferred on us by cold, it would be much less of a need to develop antibodies against this new coronavirus. I mean, and the tests simply say, you know, do you have in your body an antibody which specifically binds, you know, at least these, these tests are hard to do. I think these tests are much, much harder to do than the detection of the genetic material of COVID, the PCR tests that cause so many problems in detecting COVID everywhere. Um, so I think we don't know. Um, my feeling is, is that uh, it's very unlikely that there will be a second wave in Europe. And, United States books, I think they have reached this kind of saturation point. But that might be true for all of the world. I mean, if we make the assumption that COVID, let's make the assumption that all the lockdown measures have been ineffective. Perhaps only the place, the the only place that lockdown has been effective is in China, outside Hubei, where there really have been very, very few cases. And that actually was a, a massive achievement. I'm not sure whether it was the right thing to be done. But they did it, uh, and the reason it was a massive achievement. Uh, there are news reports that something like five million people uh, left Hubei at the time of the Chinese New Year, and went to all the different provinces uh, in uh, in China. And there were cases there, yet there was no massive outbreak in any of those different provinces. So that's pretty impressive. And this again may be due to face masks and temperature taking, relatively minor measures. I think we need to very much distinguish between lockdown, stopping schools, stopping work, stopping the economy, stopping transportation, and social distancing. Um, I spoke to a journalist yesterday or the day before in Switzerland and was very surprised to realize that Switzerland actually had uh, kept public transport running all the time. People worked. Schools were closed. There were no limitations on how far you could travel. Um, I think I think bars and restaurants may have been closed, but everything else was left open. So that's, a, that's very different from what we experienced in Israel. Uh, Sweden again has had some social distancing: no meetings more than fifty people, no football games, and so on. Um, and you know, it, it may turn out that if there is signs of a second wave, we could just simply practice mild distancing. Again, I'm a huge proponent of face masks. In the United States, face mask is somewhat seen as an invasion invasion of privacy. Why should I have to wear a face mask if I'm not scared? But I think at some point, if the alternative is lockdown, uh, it seems like a pretty easy, cheap, cost-effective measure. Um, so, you know, my, my gut feeling is, is that we are not, we're, we're not going to have, this is going to be it. But, you know, I, I would say that I uh, have a 30% chance of being wrong. Uh, but I don't think that governments uh, will uh, follow each other like this. You know, one of the justifications that all governments have done is saying, well, it might be wrong, but we just copied everybody else. And uh, that, you know, that's a silly justification. I mean, the two countries that didn't, which were Switzerland and Sweden, uh, you know, will, will come out of this looking very good. They might not be saved economically because we have a global shutting down one country has a huge input in other countries. But I think that, uh, I think it's also gonna emphasize the need to have good government. Uh, you know, I, I think we've gone through a period when, uh, I, I've always said that if we chose airline pilots and, and uh, heart surgeons and maybe scientists the same way that we choose politicians, and no offense is meant. I think some, I think politics is a very, very difficult thing to do. So I actually have huge appreciation. But if you chose the airline pilot who was not the best trained, but who was most popular, say, on Twitter, it would be kind of scary if you chose a heart surgeon who was really great on Facebook, had a lot of likes, but actually hadn't really had much time to do operations. That also might not be a good idea. And I think that... Uh, You know, I'm not necessarily a fan of everything going on in China, but they do apply very, very strict uh, criteria to their leaders. And uh, leaders that I've met there have just been so smart, you know, that it was really impressive. So I think that may be a change in the world that we need to start thinking about. You know, things are not easy. It's not all about social media and likes and, uh, you know, living forever. But there's a, a tough world out there. This may even be good preparation, what we almost certainly face from global warming. I think that, uh, uh, you know, whether it's man-made or not, climate is getting stranger and stranger. Water is going to become harder and harder to get. And uh, we're going to have to deal with that. And quite frankly, the uh, COVID-19 epidemic has been, you know, a joke compared to even very, very mild climate change remediation. Um, one thing I, you know, I, I'm a basically a very optimistic person. I, I think it's genetically the case. But uh, in re- thinking about this, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, which was in fact rejected after they asked for it. But I like my final line, and that was basically <clears throat> that although human beings have not behaved incredibly intelligently in dealing with uh, coronavirus, and this did not bode well for the crises uh, ahead, Artificial intelligence has been advancing by leaps and bounds. And in the same way that uh, when you want to drive somewhere, we uh, ask Waze or Google Maps how we should go. We no longer rely on our own judgment. Perhaps what we need to do next time <clears throat> is say, hey, Alexa, Google. <clears throat> and I can't say the server because my computer will answer me. Twitter, uh, Siri, should I panic and actually believe the answer? Because in the same way, we don't question... Google Maps or ways about driving our cars. Perhaps we'll start to listen to the voice of artificial intelligence, who will basically say we shouldn't panic because these estimates suggest that this is, you know, no more than twice as bad as flu, and this is happening here, and this is happening here. I mean, all the things I've said could, in principle, have been learnt by a smart computer algorithm. I mean, nothing I've said has been driven by, it's been driven by the data, it's been driven by a lot of luck. Uh, in or even lack of luck in finding data or not finding data, but uh, so my hope is that this will be the future, uh, that we actually need artificial intelligence not to take away our mass stupidity. Um, we'll see. And that's me being optimistic.
0: Well, Michael, thank you very much indeed. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, you've modestly, I think, uh, been honest about what we do and don't know. and. What we can hope for and what we can't realistically take for granted. But you've also highlighted the very critical importance of collecting the data and understanding it. And in the sea of uncertainty going forward, that will be very, very important for governments. Uh, I'll leave the question of uh, artificial intelligence for now, as long as well, we're when, its master. I... Yeah. As long as we remain its master uh, and uh, uh, we will do. On slide.
1: You know, one thing about data collection that struck me as being very interesting is that, you know, when people die, uh, it should be very easy for their death to be recorded uh, in a computer and have excess ex- ex- ex deaths, which are as up to date as the Australian dollar pound sterling exchange rate, which is probably up dead every few milliseconds. And, uh, Excess deaths trail. They're subject to vagaries. They release weekly reports. This is crazy. I mean, in in this modern age of computers, for every single town and location, what is the excess death per day? Or even just the total death, because finding the excess death involves statistical models that may uh, vary from person to person. But he has, you know, recorded all deaths any every location, day by day, we could get very, very and recognizing outbreaks using modern technology, the same technology that we use in the markets or in other things. And you know I would I mean I, I, I'm amazed that there's been such strangeness in the numbers. The numbers are reported are often incredibly affected by the day of the week. Uh, things are only collected on certain days. and uh, you know it seems that if there was a world government mandating uh, that a death be recorded on the day it actually happens, uh, or at least the day it's reported, if somebody dies and no one knows about it, that's different. That should go to a computer and be collected. Anyway, maybe if you could, you know, with your ties to governments, get people to think about that, it would be that wonderful. That
0: is a, a very interesting proposal, indeed, and uh, uh, this has been a very interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it enormously. I know others will as well. So. I, can, I can't thank you enough, from Northwest New South Wales, the eastern part of Australia, to Israel, uh, Jerusalem, I take it, or Tel Aviv?
1: Actually, I mean, I mean Tel, Aviv. Tel Aviv. Right. Yeah.
0: right. Uh, I meant Tel Aviv, but I'm sorry. I'm not thinking. Um, but thank you so very, very much indeed. You've been very generous with your time. It's been quite thank fascinating. You so much.
1: It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I, I. I think it's been terrific. Thank you so much, John. You've been fantastic.
0: You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.